Hello and welcome to Dungeon Regular, a show about modules, adventures, and dungeons. I'm Nova, also known as Idle Cartulary, and I'm reading through Dungeon Magazine one module at a time. I'll summarise that module, talk about its strengths and weaknesses, and then talk about a few interesting things about it that could be used at the table or impact your own homebrew design. Today I'm going to talk about Assault on Edison Point by Patricia No Elrod in issue number 1, September 1986. In Assault on Edison Point, you'll travel through the wilderness of the Old Crystal's Range before assaulting a signal tower taken by bandits to rescue the kidnapped wizard Dahlia. The wilderness is well described, though with few encounters, and the tower itself is a linear crawl through five large rooms, each basically consisting of one encounter. I can only imagine running this brief module as a one-shot, and it leaves a few threads hanging, such as the Book of Signals and the likely escape of the Mastermind, although not the leader of the bandits, which is something I like in a one-shot module. It's a one-shot module profoundly concerned with the characters in it, with considerable time given to each NPC, and would be of most interest to a table who enjoys negotiation and social play as a combination of that fact and the fact that the encounters themselves like complexity. What can we take back to our table from the assault on Edison Point, even if we don't use it in our home campaign? Firstly, summarising events. This adventure starts with two full pages of prose, and reading through it would just be better in a what-happened-so-far timeline structure. That's not to say it's all bad, it's quite well written, and as a GM I often come out of dense prose thinking that it wasted my time. This did not make me feel like that. It clearly summarised the recent history of the area and set up the stakes politically and economically, but it could have been clearer. My favourite approach to delivering this kind of information is the one I recently saw in Another Bug Hunt, a mothership module. They'd used two columns, one detailing what had happened, and the other detailing what information the PCs had regarding what happened. This was really clever and communicated succinctly the kind of information Assault on Edison Point has trouble communicating. 2. Tying the characters into recent events. At the beginning of the module, it recommends a cleric, a ranger, and a dwarf should be in the party. As I read through the adventure background, I found an interesting political climate with a recent war between two trading city-states, the retreat of dwarves from the surface due to this war, the building of signal towers as a sign that the cities were now at peace, united by a coalition of druids, and I thought that perhaps the presence of these classes in the party wasn't just going to be, be because healing and speaking to animals would be useful, but rather tie directly into the story. But I was wrong. However, tying PCs into recent events would make this political climate all the more relevant to the adventure. Similarly for NPCs, aside from in the background information, the NPCs, while well fleshed out, don't tie into the backstory provided. The exception is the mastermind of the entire operation, who doesn't give anything away and is expected to flee and hook you into a future adventure. I think it would be far more interesting to tie these NPCs and PCs into the background in simple ways. Perhaps give one of the bandits fond memories of the Dwarven times. Have a druid character befriend the druid NPCs because their goal is alone. Have the bandits be people ejected from their homes so that the signal towers could be built. Adding subtleties like this would make for an altogether more compelling story and make the backstory less tangential to the main story. 3. Engaging friendly NPCs. This adventure has two relatively high-level friendly NPCs in it, the two you're here at Edison Point to rescue. But one of them is close to death and needs a week's rest to recover, and the other has been drugged into a stupor and takes 3-12 to 12 hours to regain consciousness. 
Now I understand why giving the PCs too high level henchmen might make this module less fun, but there are other ways to engage with them. Even if the magic user had been given a potion that rendered them unable to cast spells, or the fighter conscious but his hands wrapped in spasms that render him unable to fight, would allow them to otherwise provide aid and advice, giving the PCs more information and ideas on how to engage with the bandits and the location, whether by stealth, negotiation or combat, is always a better approach, in my opinion. 4. Quantum Characters There are a number of major characters that aren't given a location in this module, but rather the referee is asked to decide where they are most likely to be. It seems to me that this advice is intended to create some quantum encounters that occur when play lulls, but I don't really feel like this is the ideal approach, particularly in this module, which I'll get to in the next section. In general, though, I don't love vagaries in my modules. When you create a character, put them in a space with a reason to be there, and an action they're undertaking. Perhaps give major NPCs a schedule, so that if the PCs dally, they might have already completed their plans, but if they do not, they might shortcut them. There are lots of ways to incorporate NPCs into your adventure if you don't want to key them statically into a location, and providing the GM with less work to do is always the stronger approach in my opinion. And lastly, 5. Engaging Spaces. There are a grand total of 4 planned encounters once you venture out into the wilderness, one being Sign of Tracks, two with friendly NPCs, and the other being on the second level out of 5 levels in the tower. This is not an engaging way to use the spaces here. Part of the problem is the aforementioned quantum characters, which can be reasonably expected to occupy the wilderness and other levels of the tower, but if it's necessary for them to be here, they should be placed there. It's not clear to me why most of the action takes place on the second level rather than the top of the tower either. It's also not clear to me why there's only one room on each level, and why the map detailed beds and barrels are not windows or likely routes for scaling the tower. The entire effect is to actively try to remove loops from this module, such that you must encounter everything in a certain order, and that alternate approaches cannot be made. But an engaging toyetic space is one that you can manipulate in many different ways, just as an engaging social space is one that you can engage with in many different ways. And arranging the spaces and the quantum characters the way this adventure chooses to minimizes how engaging they are capable of being. Build loops and backdoors into your locations. You need windows. The spaces as well as the characters need to be capable of surprising you. That's Assault on Ediston Point, in a nutshell. I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of Dungeon Regular. If you have any questions, please reach out. I'm on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Mastodon at IdleCartillery, and I write reviews and blog at playfulvoid.game.blog. If you'd like to support Dungeon Regular, please visit my Ko-fi at ko-fi forward slash IdleCartillery. You can make a one-off donation or become a member. Members are prioritized for their questions to be included in the Dungeon Regular mailbag episodes, can make suggestions for future bathtub reviews, and get to see bathtub reviews a week in advance on my Ko-fi before they go public. Our theme music is an extract from Turning the Page by Kirk Osamayo on the Free Music Archive, used under a Creative Commons commercial license. Thank you for listening to Dungeon Regular.